Um, Reformed theology is a is a whole system of thinking and theology, and I would say that if there is any emphasis or any uh, 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 focus, it would be justification. But of course, justification is what the Reformed faith has in common with uh, the rest of evangelical Christianity, and so we're not talking about that because we're talking about what sets it apart. Does that make sense? So in a sense, it's a little bit weird to talk about the distinctives because I don't want you to think that that is Reformed theology. Does that make sense? Well, we'll get to it. All right, so Reformed theology. Um, what does the re- word Reformed refer to? <laughs> does anybody know? Reformed. Like, we of course know what the word theology means, right? So what's the <coughs> word Reformed refer to? Yes! So Reformed theology is... Reformation theology, right? Um, and so uh, uh, this is a theology that is distinguished or set apart from Roman Catholicism, right? Uh, specifically medieval Catholicism. And so Martin Luther began a reformation, right? Reforming, rediscovering the gospel. And so reformed theology comes from uh, Martin Luther and more specifically John Calvin, John Calvin really worked out this full theology, his institutes. And so there are two denominations that are direct descendants of sort of John, uh, John Calvin's uh, theology, and this would be the Dutch Reformed and Presbyterians. So basically... Uh, the reason why there's only two is because, you know, what happened was when the Reformation was spreading throughout Europe, every country had its own sort of Reformation. Um, but historically, for historical reasons, um, the French the French Calvinists got wiped out. You guys remember? You guys, the, the, who's a history buff? Who knows who the French Calvinists were called? Who, uh, who loves history? Nobody? Who? They were called the Huguenots, right? So the Huguenots were wiped out by the French Catholics. So that's why there's no French Reformed Church. The uh, there was a there was a, a German Reformation, of course. So that's the Lutherans. But you know, b- basically each country had a Reformation, right? And it was only if, uh, for political reasons, that church was allowed to survive. So the reason why the Dutch have a reformed church is because the Netherlands rebelled against Spain. They formed their own independent country. That's why they, they're the Dutch reformed. The Presbyterians were sheltered under England, right? England went through its own reformation. That's a much more complicated story. And so the two denominations that have direct lineage uh, uh, to John Calvin, meaning this is what uh, reformed theology is represented in these two denominations, is the Dutch reformed and the Presbyterians. There's really no difference between these two denominations other than cultural... Uh, uh, heritage. Does that make sense? So they, we use slightly different language, but the Dutch Reformed Confessions, Presbyterian Confessions, basically the same. All right. So there are. Um, so basically, I said uh, Reformed theology is a whole system of thought. Today, we're just going to talk about the distinctives of of Reformed theology, meaning what sets it apart from all other theologies or uh, uh, evangelicalism. And of course, this is coming from my own biased perspective, but Reformed theology is the fountainhead of the Protestant, uh, of all Protestants, and everyone else is sort of like a deviation, right? Um, 
And so, uh, 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 and so these are these are the four sort of like dispute, disputes that other evangelicals, <laughs> growing up within the Reformed tradition, eventually broke off from the Reformed faith and said, "I disagree with you on this and this and this." Does that make sense? So they are. Um, so what are these four distinctives? Uh, what do we believe? Or maybe another way to say it is, why do we believe it? What do we believe? Um, well, let's just start with that first. Oh, and the, so let me just run through it. What do we believe? How is the church governed? Who is in the church? And then how are we saved? Um, the last one, the fourth one, I may not get to. And there's a reason why. But let me just try to get through the first three. All right. So what do we believe? Um, let's read some passages first. So wait, can I have you read Second uh, Timothy 4? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching... But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All right, can I have uh, Roxanne read the second one? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Good. So if you read these two passages, and in fact, if you read throughout the New Testament, uh, uh, if you read throughout the New Testament, you'll see Paul and the apostles constantly making this distinction right, between true teaching, false teaching, true gospel, false gospel. Hard to write and talk at the same time. Right? And so the question is this. How do we tell the difference between true gospel, true teaching, and false teaching, false gospel? And the answer that we hear in general evangelicalism is what? What's the answer? That I'm looking for. How, 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 how do you tell the difference between what's the true gospel and false gospel? Tracy, what, what do you think? <laughs> or what, what, is the, what is sort of the, the, the consensus view out there? Do you think? How, do, how can you tell the difference? Uh, boy, why did you choose me? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, how about Ashley? <laughs> Wait a minute. If you guys don't even have a preliminary answer, then we're in deep, deep trouble. Scripture? Yes, there yeah. you go. Okay. Good job, actually. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know. True gospel, false gospel? I believe both. <laughs> all right. So hopefully this is what you guys were thinking, right? Yes. All right. So people, this is sort of the consensus answer. The way you tell the difference is the Bible, right? Now, this is where the Reformed faith really uh, is set apart from general evangelical Christianity because uh, Reformed faith will say there's a huge problem with this answer. And the problem is uh, it's a bit subjective, right? So have you ever had a discussion with a fellow Christian where you're both reading the Bible and you both come to different opinions on what the Bible says, right? You're both quoting scripture to one another. You're both citing Bible verses to one another, and yet you come to radically different conclusions. And so, therefore, what is the answer? Uh, 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 the Reformed faith will say, when you say it's the Bible, that is, to some degree, helpful, but it opens the door wide open to subjectivity. So let me write this down. We, we will call this the problem of subjectivity. And therefore, the Reformed answer is, how do we know what we believe? How do we know what is true and false? The answer 
has to go to something a little bit more solid, something a little bit more uh, with weight and with heritage. And the answer would be historic, the historic creeds and confessions. All right. So we've already been exposing you to this. Who can cite to me some historic creeds that we've been looking at in this church? Nicene Creed. Huh? The Nicene Creed. Good. So, Nicene Creed is a very famous one. Any, anything else? There's one more that I'm looking for specifically. Starts with an A. Yes. Okay, so this one comes from the 5th century. This one comes from the 4th century. These are very old creeds. And th- these are creeds that all Christians, even all branches, Roman, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, we all agree this is the faith. This is the gospel. And why do we hold on to these creeds? Because um, it solves to a large degree the problem of subjectivity. Not entirely. But when people say, I think this is, you know, when I read the Bible, Jesus doesn't seem like a God. God. He seems like just a, a really good man. And another person says, when I read the Bible, Jesus is God. How do we resolve this dispute? We say, the Christians have always historically believed this. So when you talk to, for example, your Mormon friend, your Mormon friend can cite a whole bunch of scripture. You can say, but the creeds and confessions of the Christian faith state that Jesus is God. Now people say, well, are we putting our trust in some sort of man-made document? And the answer I would say is no, because again, if you say it's the Bible, then you're really just closing the circle to yourself. Right? You're basically saying, a Bible interpreted through me is the truth. Right? But what the creeds and confessions do is, Bible interpreted through community tells us the truth. So this is the community of believers. Right? The creeds and the confessions. And, and so these are the ancient historic creeds. They're called the ecumenical creeds. Um, the reform Confessions is what's called uh, the Westminster Standards. Confession of Faith. And then there's something called the Shorter and the Larger Catechism. Okay? So these three documents, right, are uh, 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 what is it? The, uh, the Confessions of the Presbyterian Church. The Dutch Reform is the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. Um, but they basically all say the same thing for historical cultural reasons. You know, they're set apart. The Westminster Standards came out of the English Civil War, right? I don't know if you guys know this. Um, when they overthrew the king, they established this new uh, uh, parliament. The parliament decided to lay down. They, they gathered together all... Uh, the, uh, the, the Christian scholars, pastors of the English realm, and then they created, but mostly dominated by Presbyterians, and so they created this confession of faith. And so uh, 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 the answer is, how do we know what is the truth? How do we know what is the gospel? We know it because it's formulated through community, right? So that everyone sat down together and said, okay, what is the gospel? What is justification? What is the, what is the nature of Christ? Right? What is the nature of the church? What is faith? What is sin? All these questions 
are not left to each person subjectively deciding for themselves, but is collectively decided. And people say, well, then you're just really um, crystallizing what people believe this was formed in the, uh, uh, in the 1600s. No, because through every generation, right, Christians study, think through, and, and reaffirm this confession, this, this body of truth and beliefs, and therefore we are linked through time. Right? And so, you know, one of the core values of IGC is that we believe in community. We don't believe in just contemporary community. We believe in community through time. Right? So we are linking up with Augustine. We are linking up with John Calvin. We are linking up with um, all our forebearers ahead of us who have thought through these exact same issues. So that in every generation, we're not reinventing the wheel, but we, uh, 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 we can learn from the wisdom and insight of other people, and it helps us to get out of our own narrow 20th, 21st century American perspective, right? Because when we read these historic uh, creeds and, and confessions, we, we, we read the insights and understandings of Christians thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and we recognize the same faith. We say, they are our fellow believers. They believe the exact same thing we believe, but they have perhaps different emphases or different uh, perspectives, and that helps us to get out of our own narrowness, right? And so uh, uh, the first answer to uh, the Reformation question, which is, um, what do we believe? We are a confessional church. Confessional church, uh, uh, meaning not subjective, not individual, not the Bible, <laughs> right? Because what does the Bible actually say? we hold to creeds and confessions. So that's the first answer. That's what really distinguishes uh, Reformed theology from all other uh, 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 forms of evangelical faith. If you go to a lot of church websites, it says, what do they believe? They list a, a, a list of doc, you know, doctrines, right? Some churches are really ambitious. They have like 20 doctrines. Some uh, the, uh, churches have a list of five, right? But my question is, okay, 20, even 20 is a little short, right? So is everything else left up to sort of up in the air? You know, what I really love about the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter and Larger Catechism, if you were to sit down and read it through straight, it would take you about three or four hours. Okay, so it's a very comprehensive, rich, deep doctrine. One of the things that really attracted me to the Reformed faith growing up is discovering this really rich heritage. It's really well thought out, very um, uh, uh, profound uh, uh, investigation analysis of what is the gospel, what is you know the Bible, rather than sort of just being sort of just deciding on your own within this narrow confine. Yeah, Jeff, do you have a question? What's the difference between this and, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church saying, well, the church interprets the Bible? In this. Very good question, Jeff. This is a very, very good question. <laughs> very good question. Okay, so, when I, remember, did, remember, did I say it solved the problem of subjectivity? Do you guys remember what I said exactly? Huh? It mostly solved, right? I said mostly solved. All right. So, the Roman Catholics say, <coughs> problem of subjectivity, we need to solve it. How do you solve it? How do you know what is the truth? What did the Roman Catholics say? Tracy. <laughs> All right, who can I pick on? Tra uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Chelsea, what did the Roman Catholics say? Who, how do we know what is the truth? The Pope. Oh, yes, the Pope. Okay. That completely solves the problem, right? Pope, what do, what's the truth? Da, 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 da. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Done. Thank you. Excellent. Do you know what the problem with this answer is, though? Who can tell me what the problem is? It's me, me truth. Huh? Under, under the Bible, you have me, the truth. Wouldn't that be that? Yeah, but people say, but this is a really elevated dude. You know, he's <laughs> very wise, right? He's, uh -huh. he's smart. He's studied all his life. Yeah, he makes mistakes. In fact, we would say huge mistakes. So, so the Reformation said, no, the Pope is wrong. And the Catholic Church says, how can you reject tradition, heritage? How can you do that? And what did the Reformation say? Heritage and tradition and confessions is not infallible. What's, what's the ultimate rule of faith? The Bible. So, you know, okay, so this is, we're getting really into some deep philosophical thinking. So the Bible has ultimate authority over the creeds and confessions. So it's not that we believe the creeds and confessions over the Bible. We believe the creeds and confessions because they articulate what the Bible says. If the Bible clearly contradicts the creeds and confessions, then we need to go back. Even though there's this great lineage and heritage and weight, we need to go back. But the reform position is that we deeply respect the creeds and confessions. We don't jettison it, right? So what happened is, there was something called the Radical Reformation. I don't know if you guys know history. They're called the Anabaptists. They basically said, aha, no authority, no truth. So they got rid of all the creeds and confessions. And this, frankly speaking, is where the Baptists came from, right? The Baptists, the lineage of, of, of modern-day Baptists came from this free-spirited rebellion where basically they said, only Bible, no authority, right? And I think what that leads to is chaos. So, so you know, a lot of times people criticize the reform position. Well, you guys are just like waffling, you know? Well, there really is no complete answer, right? The problem of such a change. I think this helps in perspective. Jeff, that is an excellent question. There, there is a raging firestorm of like 25 uh, uh, blogs debating that question. <laughs> I can always send it to you. No, I, I'm just saying it from like a, if you look at it from a secular point of view, they always say that, well, modern-day Christians don't really believe in what the Bible says. It's based on whoever interprets it. Sure. And if you're a Catholic, you'd be the Pope. Sure. And if, it's, if you're Protestant, you know what your pastor says. No, and then, but, but we are Reformed. <coughs> we, we hold to the creeds and confessions. No, no, I'm just saying, like, then, then there will be people that say, well, there's all these denominations out there. They can't possibly every single one believe in the same quote-unquote creed or Yeah, I would say the Reformed faith, uh, the Reformed theology says one of the reasons why there's such a proliferation of denominations is because of the subjectivity of Bible only, right? If we all sat down and thought through this through some analysis and consensus, it would greatly reduce the amount of, of, of disagreements. A lot of times, there are denominations that are formed, it's just this one wild prophet just running wild loose and saying, I have a new, new idea. And he's very charismatic, and then he gets a whole a movement. And usually it dies out, but sometimes it keeps going, right? And then it becomes a denomination. This is why we have a proliferation of denominations. I'm going to end the conversation there, because we're going to go on. I said 10 minutes each. All right. Next topic. Um, how is the church governed? All right. So um, there are uh, historically three, three answers to that question. There are three models. Um, uh, it's called... Uh, Congregationalist, Presbyterian, and then um, Episcopalian. Sorry, I'm just writing an abbreviation for the sake of time. All right, so uh, these are the three models of church government. Congregationalist, 
um, is the model is the church. All, all the church uh, governs. Does that make sense? So, uh, uh, like the budget or the doctrine or, or, you know, what should we do? Everybody votes and everybody decides. So you could think of this as pure democracy. Everybody has a vote. Presbyterianism, the, the, the Presbyterian church government is elders. Elected elders govern. So you can think of this as representative government. The, the people themselves individually don't decide, but they elect godly men uh, uh, to be elders for them to decide. Okay? The Episcopalian model is bishop. Right? Episcopalianism also includes the Roman Catholic. So the Roman Catholics, the, the, the Pope is a bishop. He's just the supreme bishop, right? But it's basically one dude. So what, what form of government? I, just, just for fun. What would this look like? Dictator. Well, that's, that's very uncharitable, Tracy. What would, what, 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 dictatorship? No. What, what, uh, huh? No, no. It's all theocracy. I mean, all the church. Monarchy, yes. King, so one man, right? Mo- one monarch. <laughs> Dictatorship? You show your hand, Tracy. You reveal which one you favor. Or which one you against. All right. So the Reformed theology holds that this is the biblical church form of church government. Okay. By the way, it's called Presbyterianism or Presbyterian church government because the word presbyter. This is a Greek. This is a test for Harry. What does that mean in Greek? Yes. <laughs> Good. Presbyter is, is Greek for elder. Okay. Um, so, uh, 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 where do we see that? Let's. Where are we? Dan, can I have you read First Peter? So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Yeah, Actually. let me stop right there. So basically, he says the elder's responsibility is to shepherd. Okay? Now, uh, uh, what does that mean? What, does the sh- what is the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep? The shepherd watches over, cares for, leads, guides the sheep. So that is the relationship, right? Uh, Peter's not saying, you sheep. Rule amongst yourselves. <laughs> Everyone decides. Let's all take a vote, sheep. Where should we go? No, there are shepherds appointed, right? Which would be the elders. Okay, so keep reading. Exercising. Exercising oversight. Yeah, let me, so let me stop right there, too. So that's the other word, right? So it's oversight. Um, another translation of the Greek word there would be manage, um, have authority, govern. So... I think uh, we could have cited a whole bunch more passages, but the New Testament clearly speaks of elders, not just as old, the graybeards of the church, but the elders are rulers or governors or managers of the church, right? And he throws in three caveats, and so let's read them. They're very important. So let's not just say, like, the, 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 the domineering bossy side of me says, okay, cuss over, let's just stop right there. But he gives us three, you know, cautions. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Okay, so so what is that basically saying? The elder should do this, not being forced to do it, not begrudgingly, but with a, you know a love and a desire to do it. Right? Keep reading. As God would have you, uh-huh. not for shameful gain, 
the Hebrew. So what's that? So the elders shouldn't be in it to profit for themselves. They shouldn't be in it to fleece the sheep, but to sacrifice, lay down their life for the sheep, right? And then finally, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Yeah, not domineering means not being authorita- authoritarian or like dictatorial dictatorship, not uh, 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 just saying, I'm the leader, listen to me, but what? Being examples, right? Being Christ-like leaders. What, how did Christ lead his disciples? He washed his disciples' feet. He laid down his life for his sheep. And so that's the way elders are supposed to be. Elders are supposed to be humble leaders, servant leaders. Um, um, but that, but 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 that's the model, right? And then let's read. Uh, 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 Ashley, can I uh, uh, have you read Hebrews thirteen? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. Yeah. So the Bible clearly says, "Obey your leaders." You know, people say, "Well, what does that mean? Who's my? You know, is there anybody who says I'm your leader?" <laughs> Obey me. No. It, you know, is, is it your inner varsity leader? No. Okay? The leadership spoken of here is the elders. This is the leadership. This is the governance of the church. And so it clearly tells us there are leaders and we need to obey them. And we need to make their task a joy and not a burden. So in other words, we don't need to be constantly, you know, uh, backbiting constantly, like, you know, making their life difficult. But we need to support them, encourage them, make their leadership a joy. And likewise, the leaders are supposed to not domineer, but to serve and to love the sheep. Does that make sense? So that's the so that's the so that's the order. So any quick questions on that? Yeah. So like in this in that context, we would like our pastors considered like almost elders. Yeah. We have like different names, right? Yeah. So so. Uh, in the in the PCA specifically, they have um, they they split up the elder position. This is a little bit open to debate, but they split the elders into what's called teaching elders. Um, I actually taught a Sunday school um, on uh, church government, two part, so you can always listen to it. You can go back to it, but they're both elders. But one's job or specialty is teaching, so that would be my job as a pastor, Wade's job as a pastor to teach the congregation, to preach the gospel. And then there's ruling elders. Ruling elders and teaching elders are both shepherds, right? They both have oversight. They're both caring for the sheep. But their job is more governance management rather than teaching. Does that make sense? Um, there are, there's a lot of good evidence in Scripture to see that there are these dual roles. But in the Presbyterian Church, they're equal. So the pastor is not over the elders. The elders are not over the pastors. They're one among equals. So, for example, you know, Harry, right? Harry, Harry, you know, is a, is, he's not an elder yet because we're not yet in a denomination, but he's a, a, a training interim elder. But he has equal authority to me, equal weight, you know, which is good. Because if I were over him, he cannot tell me, he cannot rebuke me, he cannot encourage me, correct me, you know, so. Good question. All right. So, so. That's Reformed theology is elder rule. There's one other aspect of church government called connectionalism. All right, so if you look at Acts chapter 15, there's something called the Council of Jerusalem. Has anyone heard of the Council of Jerusalem? No? Oh, 
makes me sad. This was huge, huge in, in the book of Acts. So what happened was a big controversy broke out among uh, the Gentile churches, the Greek-speaking churches, um, that there were some Judaizers going up saying, you must be circumcised in order to be a believer. And this was such a raging controversy. Paul opposed them adamantly. No, this is wrong, right? What makes you a Christian is faith in Christ, not circumcision. So finally, they had to settle the dispute. They all convened, the apostles and elders, all convened in Jerusalem. And it's called the Council of Jerusalem. It's not called that in the Bible, but that's sort of our name for it. And what happens is they all meet together, and they're all of one mind, of one accord. They decide Paul is right. The gospel does not depend on circumcision. And this is what happens. Uh, verse 22. Uh, Nimi, can you read that for us? Then it seems good to the apostles and the elders that the whole church choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Yeah, so this is what happened, okay? So this is Antioch, and this is Jerusalem, right? So this controversy broke out, centered in Antioch, but all the churches sent elders, pastors, representatives, along with all the apostles. They met. They came to a decision. Then that decision was written in a letter, and the letter was sent back to Antioch along with a whole bunch of other churches. And this letter, listen to me, was binding. This letter decided the matter. It was not for Antioch to decide by itself. But this matter was decided in Jerusalem with the, with the gathering of all elders and, and apostles. And that ruling council had authority over all the churches around it, including Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So that's what's called connectionalism. This is opposed to versus what's called independency. And this is really one of the key tenets of, of the Baptist denomination, which is that every church is independent. Every church decides on their own. They can associate, they can uh, have friendships and cooperation with other churches, but no church has authority and no church has power over the others. This is versus what's called connectionalism, which is a, a, a feature of Presbyterianism, so that you have multiple churches and all of their elders, all of their elders and pastors meet together in a regional body called the Presbytery. Sorry. Presbytery. The, the decisions of the presbytery have binding power over all the churches because we're imitating the model in Acts 15. Um, is there a difference between what we do now um, and say the Council of Jerusalem because if we still believe that that was the apostolic age so they had authority to bind... Yeah, so that's a really good question. You, you guys anticipate all the nuanced, subtle arguments involved here. <laughs> Our Baptist brothers whom we dearly love point that out and say Acts 15 doesn't apply because they were apostles um, I would say by the way the Baptists are generally continuationalists so, but that's a whole other issue um, so uh, the Baptist brothers will say it doesn't apply because there were apostles there right and apostles obviously had great I mean they had you know ultimate authority in a way that nobody else has authority now the, the Presbyterians would respond yes there were apostles and elders right and, and so even though the Council of Jerusalem was unique, we're never going to have another Council of Jerusalem. In other words, even the decisions of the Presbytery, to some degree, are, should be submitted to Scripture, right? So if the, if the decision of the Presbytery, like, this is the gospel, you must be a good person. 
then you as an independent church can say, no, this is wrong. <laughs> um, um, so it becomes complicated, right? But, uh, uh, but the reason why I believe connectionalism is correct is because I think the Council of Jerusalem is not just a historical example, but it's telling us a paradigm, which is community extends not only within the church, it extends across churches. What obligation do we have to our fellow churches? We have obligations of oversight, accountability, aid. If, if our sister church is in financial struggle, and if we can help them, we should. Um, if, if their pastor is going through some sort of huge personal crisis, and we have like multiple pastoral staff, we can send them a pastor for a little bit you know, and help them. So I believe connectionalism is deeply biblical because it's community-oriented. I believe this whole view of independency, and so this is sort of the Baptist position, independency combined with congregationalism is really a function of American independent, uh, American individualism. Not a biblical way to do things. By the way, church government is a peripheral issue, <laughs> relatively speaking. No, I, I, I really need to say that. And so therefore, if you find yourself disagreeing, if you say, I'm really you know, an Episcopalian, or I'm really a Congregationalist, it is okay. You know, it's okay. Wait, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Ten minutes. Fifteen minutes to do infant baptism. All right. <laughs> it's really funny. Who was I telling this to? I was telling this to somebody. I actually did a Sunday school series on infant baptism. You know how many classes it was? Six. <laughs> I did six classes on infant baptism. I'm about to summarize all the arguments for you in ten minutes. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, so the question is, who is in the church, right? And uh, uh, why do we therefore baptize? Okay, so so the, the reason why this is a relevant question because baptism has to do with the sign of church membership. How do you enter the church? Baptism, right? Um, and so, should that sign of baptism apply to children? The answer that the Reformed faith, uh, uh, the Presbyterians give, is yes. And the reason is, here's, and so here's the argument. I'm going to go relatively quickly. There's a there's a parallel between baptism and circumcision. Okay, so that's the argument. There's a parallel between baptism and circumcision because they both symbolize the exact same thing, which is salvation in Christ. And therefore, if you look at the Old Testament and you see that circumcision was applied also to infants, to babies, therefore, baptism should also be applied to uh, infants and babies, right? So that's basically the argument. Now, our Baptists... So this is really where uh, the, the disagreement is. This pen is completely dead. Um, um, so the argument our, our Baptist friends will make is... will say, no, this is different. They'll say, this is an ethnic marker. Right? It's basically a sign that you're a Jew. Right? It's like a... Like a, like a like, you know, every ethnic, ethnic group has their own unique, distinctive ethnic signs. You know, like Koreans eat kimchi, right? You know, you know, Chinese people give out red envelopes on New Year's Day. The Jews 
Those weirdos, they like to cut the foreskin off their babies' penises, right? <laughs> okay, so that's, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's basically the argument. That is the foundational argument of the Baptist, which is that circumcision is merely an ethnic marker, and this is why it was applied to babies. It's applied to babies because you're a baby, I mean, you're a Jew by virtue of your genes, by virtue of your birth. Okay, and therefore it doesn't apply to baptism because baptism, the church is not an ethnic group like Israel. The church is a spiritual is a spiritual uh, reality. Okay, does that make sense? Do you guys understand the argument? Because I'm about to refute it. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so here's the refutation. Romans four. Uh, uh, Lisa, can you read Romans four? Stop right there. So, what does Paul tell us? By the way, Paul, Paul, master theologian. We should listen to Paul. Paul, is circumcision an ethnic marker? What does he say? He says it's the seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. What is that? It's not an ethnic marker. It's not a mark of Jewishness. It's a mark of salvation. That's what Paul is telling us. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Um, uh, Harry, can you read that for me? This is a critically important passage. I, I rarely touched on this, but now in this class I want to spend some time looking at it. So, Colossians 2. Oh, oh, actually, before you read it, let me set up the paradigm. Sorry. So, um, a good definition of a sacrament is it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Does that make sense? So, there's an inward reality, which is salvation in Christ. This is invisible, right? Like, you know, when you look at Harry, does he look saved? He looks clean shaven. <laughs> uh, you can't tell. It's invisible. It's spiritual. Um, but there are outward signs that you can display that shows this inward reality. So there, there are these outward signs, okay? Um, let me just write. So this is an outward sign, okay? Paul tells us there are two outward signs to this inward reality. Okay, so let's read Colossians 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All right, very dense verse, but let's break it down. Paul says, you were circumcised. So he's writing to the contemporary, you know, the, 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 the Greek church, of which consisted both Jews and Gentiles. So there are people who were not circumcised, who were not ethnic Jews. He says, but you were circumcised. The, the, the Gentiles are saying, the Greeks are saying, oh, I'm not circumcised. What does Paul say? Paul says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So that's a key, that's... What is that telling us? It's telling us that it's not the normal circumcision with a knife. It is a circumcision done by God. It is a spiritual circumcision, right? By putting off the body of the flesh, which is another way of saying cutting off of sin. By the way, the reason why circumcision and baptism are parallel is because they have the exact <coughs> same parallel symbolism. What is baptism? What's the symbol of baptism? What's going on? I mean, there are multiples... So I, let me let me start with circumcision. What's what's going on in circumcision? You're cutting off the foreskin. What does the foreskin represent? 
excess skin. <laughs> what does the foreskin represent? It has deep, deep meaning, symbolic meaning. Eric. Dirt, no, the foreskin's clean, it's fine. You shouldn't cut it off just because it's, huh? Flesh, meaning? Sin, yeah. So this is why the Old Testament prophets are always saying, circumcise your hearts. Cut off the, 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 the sin. The foreskin represents sin. It represents uh, depravity. Baptism is washing off dirt, right? It's a ceremonial bath. So both of these signs are representing the exact same thing. Cutting off sin, washing off sin. Right, and so Paul says, so circumcision is a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. And then he says, verse twelve, having been buried with him in baptism. Right, so baptism is the exact same thing. So that's the other symbolism of baptism. Baptism is you're dying with Christ. Right, um, the, the 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 waters of baptism is like a death. Right, it's like you're drowning. It, it, it. And so both baptism and circumcision are outward signs of this same reality, right? And therefore, that is the parallel. Paul links it together in Colossians 2. Baptism, circumcision, they're both talking about the same thing. The only difference is that circumcision is for the Old Testament. Baptism is a new sign for the New Testament. Why? Why is the sign changed? Because the signs change with the New Covenant. Uh, there There was a communion meal in the Old Testament called... What's the communion meal of the Old Testament? In, upon which we remember God's saving work. And we, and we also look forward to Him saving us again. Passover. What did Jesus say? Don't eat Passover anymore. Now, from now on, eat what? What's in the communion meal, Christian? Yes, so, the Lord's Supper, communion, right? So, so, so what happens is Passover becomes communion. Right? And circumcision becomes baptism. These two are bloody, right? You kill a lamb, blood results when you cut the foreskin off. These are non bloody because this is pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ and now we have the reality. So this is this is a sign of belonging, right? This is a sign of belonging. This is a meal of communion, this is a meal of communion. They transfer over. It's a new sign because it's a new, spirit-filled reality in the New Testament. Um, and therefore, if we realize that there's, there's this connection, if you go back to the Old Testament, circumcision is clearly commanded. God commands Abraham to circumcise Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is around 13 years old, but Isaac was a baby. Why would Isaac be circumcised when he doesn't have this salvation in Christ? Like, How do we even know? The answer is that, and this is the principle, the faith of the parent counts for the child, right? And so that answers the question, who belongs in the church? Who belongs in Israel? The church and Israel are both the people of God. Who belongs? Children, right? In other words, we treat children as little believers, and therefore we raise them up. Just like, you know, if you read the Old Testament, uh, God is always saying, Moses is always saying, you know, train up the children in the faith. When they're just little, tell them about the Exodus. Tell them about the Red Sea crossing. Tell them about uh, our covenant God. And in the same way, Christians are to do the exact same. We're not, uh, the, the children of believers are not on the outside. Because you know what people on the outside are? They're pagans. Right? We don't think of our, the children of the church as little pagans. We think of them as 
just like the children of Israel, we think of them as in the church, in the people of God. And of course, they have to one day take it up as their own. They have to express faith. So we're not saying they don't have to believe, but we're saying while they're growing up, before they can believe, they're always taught, you, this, is, this is Jesus. He's your Savior. He loves you. Even though you're a sinner, you rebelled against Him. He sacrificed Himself for you. And then one day, we, we hope and expect all the children to express faith. Sometimes they won't, and that's called apostasy. People leave the church. But that happens with adults as well. I have no idea whether all of you are going to stay in the church. Some of you may leave, but that doesn't prohibit me from baptizing you. I don't wait until I make sure absolutely uh, that you won't leave. All right. So, um, and so where do we see, do we see a New Testament command? Absolutely. Um, many New Testament commands, but let me just read to you Acts chapter 2. Um, uh, uh, Justin, can, can you read Acts 2? And then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Yeah, so so Peter talks about a promise. What promise is he talking about? He is clearly talking about the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? He says the promise is for you, and he names three groups of people. You... Your children and those far off, right? He says these three the promise applies to. This is an exact echo of the Abrahamic covenant. If you go to Genesis chapter 17, and I'll, and I'll read it for you guys. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. So you, Abraham, and your offspring. So this is your children, okay? After you. And then I skip down to verse, tw- verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, listen, or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring. So what is that? Those who are far off. Foreign slaves, right? Both he was born in your house and he was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. The sign of salvation, right? The, pro- the Abrahamic promise applies to three classes of people. To you, your children, and those who are far off. Peter evokes the exact same language. And what he's saying, therefore, is that the church is the recipient of the Abrahamic promise. The church is living out, is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. When God promised Abraham, he was thinking about Acts chapter 2. He was thinking about Peter. This proclamation, at last, it's come true. Those who are far off, Gentiles, the children of believers, and those of you who are hearing, the gospel's for you. And so... Uh, uh, do we see actual examples of infant baptisms in the New Testament? Yes. They're called household baptisms. Right? Like when Lydia got baptized, Lydia and her whole household. The word household always includes children. You never say, my household. Um, and then, you know, you go somewhere. Why are you living your kids? I'm not talking about my kids. I'm just talking about the adults. No. Household always includes babies, children. So the household baptisms, there are four of them. Those are the infant baptisms in, in the New Testament. That's my argument in 10 minutes. Let me emphasize again, this is a, a peripheral issue. All of these are relatively peripheral issues. Like I said, I said these are distinctives. So this is not core. What is core to Reformed faith is, I would say, justification by faith alone. 
Christ saving us, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. These are, but all of these we share in common with evangelicals, which is great, which is why we don't think of evangelicals as non-Christians. We think of the, 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 the rest of the evangelical world as fellow brothers. There's this wonderful organization called the Gospel Coalition I deeply love. It's basically a partnership coalition between Presbyterians, PCA basically, and Reformed Baptists. Reformed Baptists disagree with us on these three points, but they agree with us on the fourth point, which is the doctrine of predestination, which I'm not going to get to. But but otherwise speaking, you know, people like Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, man, they're brothers, you know? But you hear them talk about these issues, they'll probably, you know, say, oh, Michael, you're dumb. But, um, <laughs> Presbyterians are dumb. But, uh, uh, but we, you know, we do gentle ribbing. Um, <laughs> um, any questions on the infant baptism question? I don't know if that was even comprehensible at the speed at which I did it. Any questions? Surely there must be some. While you're thinking of a question, let me just tell you, I brought to you, I brought you guys my treasure trove. Um, here's a booklet, Why Do We Baptize Infants? This is like a 30-page explanation, the best explanation I've ever read. Gold, Brian Chapel. What is a Reformed Church? If you guys want to read that, these are all free. So you may freely take them. They're literally like a dollar fifty each. Don't feel bad. <laughs> what is church government? So this is you know defense of the Presbyterian form of church government. If you guys are interested in that, why do we have creeds? Defense of confessionalism. Okay, this is gold too. So you may yes, Lisa. Thank you for asking the question. They repudiate their sign. So, if an adult is baptized, or yeah, either adult or yeah, so either an adult or a or a child leaves the church or repudiates their faith, it's called apostasy. Mm -hmm. They reject the sign. They say this sign does not apply to me. So, you know, does the sign prohibit people from leaving? Of course not. Does the sign automatically mean that you're saved? No. The sign is an is an outward sign of an inward reality. You have to have the inward reality. Inward reality is faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Great question. Any other questions? No. All right. So that, in summary, are the distinctives what sets the Reformed faith apart from the rest of our brothers and sisters. All right. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study um, these distinctives. They are important. They are important, but they are not central. We recognize that they are peripheral, and therefore we rejoice in um, the broad fellowship that we can enjoy with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we pray that though we want to be a particular church, nevertheless we want to be a broad-minded, loving, embracing, inclusive church for all believers. Uh, help us to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys.